0: Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon book list, coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, Leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help, so thank you to everyone for all that. Alright, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. In the mid-1970s, a series of purported supernatural events took place in a small, yellow, wooden slatted house in a suburb of Bridgeport, Connecticut. At a time when demonic forces were very much in vogue, the Goodin family were plagued by all manner of phenomena Quickly drew the attention of the national press, along with thousands of curious onlookers. Despite the contemporary fervor that it sparked, and the similarities to several other, far more well-traversed supernatural tales, such as Amityville in America or Enfield in the UK, the events that took place in Bridgeport in the mid-70s have, remarkably, managed to slip largely under the radar, cloaked from wider public attention. Less glamorous, but no less fantastic. The case of the Lindley Street Haunting, officially struck off as a hoax before a swift U-turn by the authorities, remains as one of the most dramatic and well-documented cases in the history of the American supernatural to this day. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello everybody, welcome, this is Dark Histories, I'm Ben as always. This is season four episode, I don't even know, but it's near Halloween, so that's good news. You know what it means when we're near Halloween, right? Obviously, we're going to have to be jumping onto a supernatural history tale. And actually, this one's not as old as I normally would go, I guess. It's, you know, 1970s, but I think it's absolutely fascinating, great story, and, and kind of, say, a little bit under the radar. I mean, I think it's well known if you're into your kind of ghosts and stuff, perhaps. But, like, in the wider public, it's not so well-known. So I thought we'd get to grips with this one this week. Before we start, I want to give a little bit of a heads-up. we got a live stream coming up on YouTube on the 24th of October, and we're going to be talking about urban legends. And specifically, if you want to get involved, we want to talk about your urban legends. So if you've got tales of urban legends, not necessarily like your personal tales, they're more for the Christmas campfire episode... But if you've got tales, like, you know, just, just just basically I'd like to hear your urban legends that from your area because we want to talk about from all over the place. And I think urban legends are better if they've got that kind of personal edge. So, yeah, if, if you've got urban legends, like stories of urban legends that are near to you, like local to your area, then definitely get hold of me. Email them into me um, because we want to talk about them. And I, I want to cast the net out as wide as possible and get, Get get Urban Legends from as many places as possible. So if you've got stories and you'd like to just quickly write them up for me and just tell me, your say, your local stories, email them to social at darkhistory.com. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, actually, so that you can see it. Yeah, anyway, enough of that. Let's crack on with the episode. This is the story of the Lindley Street Haunting The American 70s was a period of fairly abrupt and chaotic cultural and political turmoil. Whilst the 60s is often seen as the decade of change, the 70s was a continuation of everything that kicked off in the 10 years prior. The rowies of the anti-war movement continued as more and more Americans protested against US involvement in Vietnam, a war that got no less palatable to the public, despite Nixon's attempts to shift perceptions away from the creeping truth that it had been a bloody and futile conflict, with no real end in sight, even after a decade of fighting. Alongside the surge in protest against the war, social and political disgruntlement reached a tipping point as civil rights, feminist and queer movements launched into the spotlight, continuing the fight for recognition and equality. With so much turbulence rocking society, a new right evolved as a counterbalance, embracing conservative populism, with strong ties to what many middle-class Americans considered traditional social values and roles. Politics aside, this new right trumpeted family, stability, patriotism, and importantly, religion, which many felt had been under attack from a rise in occult fascination since the formation of the satanic church in the mid-60s, when its progenitor, Anton LaVey, published the satanic bible, to overwhelming media sensation. Hand in hand with the sensation of the occult, a swathe of high-profile killings bolstered the fear that many felt, as the Manson family, the Zodiac killer, the Alhambra killer, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy and the Hillside Stranglers all found a terrified but hungry audience devouring their headlines. With so much tumultuous transition taking place on the streets, Popular culture was quickly put under the cosh, as music, art and film reflected popular themes. Rock music was already an instigator and villain to many in the New Right movement, but in reality, its occult imagery was fairly low-key and often imagined, especially in comparison to themes being broached in exploitation cinema across the country as the emergence of the new Hollywood gripped America, breeding innovation and subverting cinematic norms in movie theaters that would cater into a new, more socially demanding audience. Films like Rosemary's Baby, released in 1968, paved the way for the demonically-themed boom of the 1970s gore and exploitation cinema, embracing a satanic renaissance and pushing the occult into the mainstream. In December of 1973, one of the most famous and long-enduring movies of the period released to an enraptured audience when William Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist, Published two years prior was adapted to screen in paper form, The Exorcist had already enjoyed seventeen weeks at the top of the New York Times bestseller list after Blatty, an out-of-work comic writer, lucked out and scored a last minute replacement guest spot on television to promote his struggling new work. This led it to being a tearaway success, and Warner Brothers picked up the rights to adapt it for the screen and unleashed it upon audiences on the 26th of December. 1973, though not before stoking the fears of the ready and willing public by hyping the film's cursed status, citing a series of nine deaths was in the cast and crew that had taken place during or shortly after filming. Chief amongst them, the actor Jack McGowran, who played the alcoholic director in the film, passed away shortly after wrapping. Despite its lack of all-star cast and production flying painfully over budget, The Exorcist went on to cause such an uproar with its release that people clamoured to be a part of the spectacle. Reviews called it repulsive, objectionable, lewd and probably dangerous. Destined to stain the lives of millions with its attack upon conventional Christianity. Despite reviews such as these, larger Catholicism actually embraced the movie and they pushed it as a pro-religious film crediting it for a spike in applications to the priesthood. The Exorcist went on to become the ninth highest grossing film of all time in the US, and the top grossing horror film, a title that it held until 2017 with the release of the Stephen King remake, It. The film brought demonology, exorcism, possessions and the occult to a new, even wider audience than ever before. The Catholic practice of exorcism, which ended until the film's release, Largely a rare and covert practice was pushed upon the mainstream who, fueled by the new right, were primed to accept such a distasteful affront to traditional values. Alongside objections came a spate of demonic cases, as phrases that would have been deemed archaic just a decade prior re-entered popular vernacular. Alongside the sensation, which the press were naturally inclined to exploit, was the reality of the fears that the film stoked. The director, William Friedkin, said of it years later, It's not a film about Dracula. It's not a film about the alien. It's a film about the people who live up the street. It's about a real street in a real town, with real people living in it. To so many, the exorcist and the popular culture that surrounded it was the embodiment of the crumbling traditional social norms. Occult influence was taking over American minds and religion was suffering. The film may have invoked a temporary scare or two in the cinema but in the popular imagination, long after the end credits rolled it was another nail scratching away at an accepted structure and instilling fear in the mind The seeds of the satanic panic were sown by the media and the new right religious groups Political scandal, growing fear of a sensationalised occult and a fear of a conspiratorial authority all played their role in the spike of supernatural and demonic cases that spilled over into real life throughout the decade. The attention is a bit frenetic, a kind of hysterical reaction, says the Reverend Edward B. Brugerman, a Roman Catholic theologian of Xavier University in Cincinnati and a specialist on the subject. Much of it is hokum, about 95% of it. However, as a result of the current movie, The Exorcist and the general fascination with the occult Many churches and their institutions have experienced a wave of claim cases of demonic possession. The danger is that their problem usually is psychological, such as unleashed guilt feelings or mental illusions needing treatment. Typical of cases in which his advice had been enlisted, he said, was that of a young woman who was simply hungry for attention. It was a case of a disturbed mind more than anything else. Nevertheless, A rash of such complaints and inquiries have descended upon church officials and pastors, usually as a result of the movie. In Bridgeport, Connecticut, months after the exorcist hit general release across the nation, one such case tore into the headlines when a small, unimposing, yellow, wooden slatted house situated on Lindley Street became the centre of a demonic haunting that would bring the terrors of the cinema into the real world. It was a Real street in a real town with real people living in it, and the audience was primed. The Goodin family lived in a small, yellow-painted wooden house at 966 Limley Street, the northern end of a long road that cut through the centre of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Gerard Jerry Goodin had been born in 1919 in Aristote County, Maine, he grew up as a devout Catholic and altar boy, with designs to become a priest. However, the stranglehold of the Great Depression pressed him into work as soon as he was able. After graduating high school, he joined the Air Force, serving during the Second World War, and then, in peacetime, began his 23-year stint as a maintenance man at Harvey Hubbell Inc., the Connecticut-based electrical manufacturing giant. Though he had given up on his boyhood dreams of becoming a priest. He remained deeply religious throughout his adult life and was connected with the local community via his activities as a boy scout leader where he maintained a steady reputation as someone keen on positive community, practical and down to earth Jerry met and married Laura Roberts, a native Connecticutian, five years his junior in 1960 and the pair moved into the small bungalow shortly after Laura had had a somewhat more difficult upbringing in no small part due to her Native American heritage in an area dominated by white Irish and Italian American population during a period of difficult race relations. Laura, perhaps frustrated with the situation was known to have had a rather high-strung personality which eventually led to difficulty making friends and an isolated existence throughout her school years. A year after they moved into Lindley Street Laura gave birth to their first child, Gerard Goodin Jr, on the 31st of October, 1961. The apple of their eye, it wasn't until Jerry Jr was six months old and the neighbors questioned his propensity to tilt his head downwards that Jerry and Laura took him to a hospital in New Jersey where he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Dedicated parents, Jerry took him to weekly physical therapy and the couple paid out heavily for specially made braces that would help him to hold himself up, strapping him from chest to legs, as well as a special mobility chair. When it was suggested that they should put him into a long-term hospice care, both Jerry and Laura categorically shut down the idea, restating their own responsibility to raise him at home. For six years, the Goodins doted on Jerry Jr., wrapping him in cotton wool and taking care of his every need. In September of 1967, however, After catching a cold and riding a high fever, he was taken to hospital where his care was entrusted to specialists. On Wednesday, the 27th of September, Jerry Jr. sadly passed away, aged only six years old, and was buried in a small plot next to his grandparents in St. Michael's Cemetery. It had been a tough period for the Goodins, and immediately following the death of their son, Laura found herself in hospital undergoing a hysterectomy ...to remove a tumour that had been discovered in the months earlier. Once she had recovered, Jerry and Laura visited the grave of their son every day for six months after his death... ...and they built a small shrine in their house where they could pray for his soul. Eventually, time began to heal their wounds, and the couple looked towards adoption... ...speaking with Father Grimes and arranging for the process through the local church... After securing 25 letters of recommendation for adoptive parenting from friends, neighbors, and the local authorities, it didn't take long for the church to recommend a young girl for adoption. They found a 4-year-old Five Nations Iroquois girl named Marcia, the youngest of nine children in a family of children who had suffered at the hands of abusive parents. The 18-hour trip to Ontario to meet Marcia was nothing to Jerry and Laura who fell over themselves to bring her into their home and shower her with the same love that they had shown Jerry Jr. As parents, there was certainly no doubt in the care that they put into their children. However, after the intensive care necessary to raise Jerry Jr. and his loss at such a young age, it soon became apparent that Laura was more than a little overbearing towards Marcia. Though she did go to school and was known as a nice girl, she had no friends and lived more or less in isolation from children her own age, as Laura held her back from most every situation, keen to watch her at every turn and sweep to the rescue at the smallest incident. Shortly after adopting Marcia, Jerry and Laura noticed small things going awry at home. Small household items would go missing, and a repetitive knocking sound thumped on the walls from time to time. At the time, construction work was underway. Building an extension to the nearby St. Vincent's Hospital But Jerry was sure that the knocks he heard in the home Had nothing to do with that It was far too rhythmical and intelligent he thought And strangely It seemed at times to be coming from inside the walls Or as if someone was throwing stones at the house The noises would begin as a tapping And then go into an awful bang Assuming the culprit was one of the neighbours Jerry contacted his friend and neighbour, John Holdsworth, who suggested he record the sounds as evidence, and the local gas supplier and fire department sent engineers round on several occasions by Jerry's request to check the integrity of the pipes and foundations of the house, which came up blank time and time again, until they eventually began to stop responding to his calls. More annoyed than frightened, Jerry and his friends tossed around several theories, from pranks by the neighbours, to underground streams and even a fleeting conspiracy theory that a property developer who had been scouting the area trying to get people to sell up was undertaking some nefarious plan to push out stubborn residents. Eventually, Jerry felt his suspicions of one of the neighbours had been justified when in the weeks following the departure of the suspected neighbour who had moved house, the banging came to an abrupt stop. As time passed, the noises slipped into the back of his memory and family life obscured the throwaway concerns of an irrelevant knocking in the walls. Little were the Goodins to know that the series of disturbances were nothing compared to what would follow in the coming years. In the summer of 1974, strange events once again gripped the Goodin household when, as Jerry presumed, another prankster began knocking on the door of the house, only to run away before anyone could answer. Every time they heard the same, thumping triplet of raps on the screen of the front door, but when they swung it open, the steps leading up to the front door were deserted and whoever had done it had scarpered. Perhaps one of the more alarming incidents occurred one night when Jerry and Laura lay in bed. The knocking on the door had quickly gotten old and fallen into the realm of frustrating prank, but less easy to dismiss was the appearance of a disembodied hand on one of the windows. Shining in through the pane of glass silhouetted by the street lamp outside. Shortly after, the door knocking escalated, when Jerry answered the door to no one with a familiar and frustrated sigh one night, only to notice a set of wet footprints moving down the front steps and away from the house, despite the weather being warm and dry. Strange events had begun happening inside the house by now too, on more than one occasion. Jerry and Laura had noticed doors opening that they were sure had been closed, and items of furniture would shift slightly from their usual positions. Jerry confided in one of his Scoutmaster friends, but for the most part tried to dismiss the events as just one of those weird things that happen. Besides, the Goodins had far more difficult and pressing matters to deal with than a phantom door opener. Marcia, who had always struggled to make friends at school, and had often suffered bullying due to her Iroquois heritage, was kicked in the back by a young boy from her class, and immediately, Laura panicked at the situation and had pulled her out of school, electing instead to homeschool the already isolated child. Summer turned to autumn, and as the nights drew in and Thanksgiving approached, the bizarre events at Lindley Street were gearing up to break out from being a hand-waving sideshow to a national headline. On the evening of Thursday, the 21st November, 1974, the Goodins were hosting their neighbours and friends the Holsworths for dinner, along with their 14-year-old daughter. Whilst they ate, a loud, shattering crunch came from the master bedroom, the sound barreling around the small house. When they got up to check what had made the sound, Jerry found the window in the bedroom smashed across the floor. Strangely, it had been a double-glazed pane and the outside pane of glass had been left completely unscathed in the incident whilst the inside pane had shattered completely the next night the banging returned only this time it was not going to be ignored or forgotten about quickly and was louder than any time in the past the family spent a disturbed night waiting for the knocking to stop which it finally did as the sun threatened to rise on the horizon the next day Jerry went to work as normal As he clocked off and headed home for dinner He left in a more upbeat mood The family had planned the weekend away to visit their relations in New York A common outing that got everyone a little change of scenery from time to time Jerry had always been close with his family Especially his two brothers And so it was a time to look forward to When he got home He was greeted by Laura and Marcia Sitting in the lounge Marcia playing with a puzzle on the floor whilst Laura watched TV. The family had dinner, and they returned to the lounge to settle down for the evening, sitting in the easy chairs and flipping on the TV. Domestic bliss was soon broken, however, when sounds once again erupted from the bedroom. Jerry reluctantly got up and went to see what had made the commotion this time, to find the shade on the window had pulled up, knocking the curtain onto the floor. After double-checking that all the windows in the room were closed, Jerry put the shade and the curtain back as they should be and he left the room. However, as soon as he stood one foot out of the door, he heard the same banging as before as the shade flipped open and by the time he'd sprang around, the curtain was back on the floor once again. This time, he elected to leave it be. 30 minutes later, the exact same scene took place in the kitchen as the shade flipped up and the curtain hit the ground. Leaving the curtains as they were, the Goodins sat together in the lounge as a series of knocks and bangs on the walls of the house grew to a violent crescendo over the next hour, eventually ceasing, allowing the family to retire to bed, shaken and bemused at what they had been hearing. Saturday came and the family ventured out to New York, enjoying their family day and stopping off to do a spot of grocery shopping on the way home. The previous night's events had shaken Jerry and Laura somewhat, but Jerry in particular was keen to attribute it to pranks or something as yet unexplainable. It was not, however, something so out of the ordinary as to make him jump to any supernatural explanations. At least, that's what he thought up until that evening. When they got home, they found the house much as they had left it in the morning. However, the TV in the bedroom had fallen over and was lying face down on the bed. Writing the set and going out to the car to bring in the groceries, Laura headed to the kitchen where, to her great shock, she saw the table flip over and land upside down. Screaming for Jerry, he returned with grocery bags under his arms in time to see dishes flying into the walls of the kitchen, smashing on the ground, and a knife block expel its collection of kitchen knives, forcing him to duck out of the way as the dangerous projectiles that slammed into the wall behind him. Jerry collected the knife block itself from the floor only to once again have to duck out of the way as knives pulled from the wall behind and flew across the room for a second time. Jerry and Laura rushed into the living room to take cover just as the TV set fell face first the edge of which crashed onto the top of Laura's foot fracturing her toe. It was an intense outburst and a severe escalation from the days past but as Laura bandaged her foot and readied dinner The events began to relax and ease away, leaving the silence of the night to creep around the small house on Lindley Street. Back in the lounge, Jerry and Laura sat up with Marcia until late at night, waiting to go to bed, but not entirely sure if the commotion would begin again. Eventually, everyone got too tired and they returned to the bedrooms, but as Jerry went through the house to turn the lights off, he said he felt a strange presence in the kitchen and he'd heard a small thud from the kitchen table, which thankfully remained upright. As the house fell into silence, and sleep crept in upon the residents, Laura and Jerry were pulled sharply awake when they heard their daughter scream from the bathroom. Marcia had gotten up to use the toilet, only to find the bathroom trashed. The caps from all the various bottles were laying across the floor, and the shower curtain rail had fallen down. As Jerry cleaned up the room, Laura and Marcia awaited his return in the living room where all three sat awake until 3am this time making sure that any strange events had truly stopped before they tried to sleep again. It had been another taxing night in the Gooding household and Jerry spent a difficult night tossing and turning waking at 8.30am. He headed to the kitchen to make coffee only to find the table flipped over once more and as he busied himself with the hot water, the fridge shifted behind him, turning on its axis. Jerry, now more alarmed than ever that the events were clearly not looking to let up, even in daylight, rushed to the bedroom to wake Laura, and as he stepped into the room, a crucifix fell from the wall just as Marcia screamed from her own room. Laura, instantly primed at the sound of her beloved daughter's screams, leapt out of bed and went to the room with Jerry, this time to find Marcia's bureau lying on the floor and the crucifix in her own room lying face down with it. That morning, as they sat in the lounge with the TV on, wondering what they should or could do, interference played havoc with the signal, repeatedly planting the sound of a ringing doorbell, crackling in broken tones over every channel. With little other ideas as to where they should go or what they should do, Jerry phoned his friends, Harold and Mary Hoffman, asking them for help. Strange things are happening here, he told them. When the call ended, Harold jumped in his car and headed over to the Goodins to see what he could do, and the Goodin family went out to the porch of their house to try and wait it out. As they sat in the porch, hearing the chairs inside slam up and down on the wooden floors, Laura spotted Janet, the 14-year-old daughter of the Holsworths, out walking her dog. The couple called out to her and asked her to fetch her father and send him over to the house as quickly as she could. When he arrived, Jerry found it difficult to explain precisely what had been happening to them. We need help. Something evil is wrecking the house. It was quite a shock to the off-duty officer on a Sunday morning, but when John Holdsworth stepped inside the house, all became clear. It looked as though they had been burgled. Furniture lay tipped and turned on the floor, whilst ornaments and other possessions scattered about in each room. Pictures from the walls lay upside down on the floor, their frames smashed. Lost for words, he turned to Jerry and asked simply, What the hell happened here? With the little else that he could do, John busied himself by moving the TV back into its usual position, only for it to slide back, turning 35 degrees on its axis as soon as his back was turned. Moving through the house, John found the kitchen just as much of a shambles. The table and chairs were flipped and fallen, and dishes were smashed with porcelain shards scattered right across the room. As he took in the scene, the fridge behind him teetered back and forth, knocking into his elbow, causing him to start and turn to see that the fridge was clearly moving on its own volition. It was enough for John, who immediately put a call into the police station asking for backup and stating that there was an unknown situation at the house on 966 Lindley Street. Meanwhile, Harold Hoffman arrived and Jerry filled him in on what had been happening and he joined the ranks of the confused as the family and two friends stood in the lounge utterly perplexed at the state of the place. Officers Carl Leonzi and Joe Tomek were out on patrol that morning in the local area and they got the call from the station to head over to the Goodins. They were told that there had been a call from Holsworth, an off-duty officer who had left a vague report and they were asked to check out the situation and call back to let them know what was going on. When they arrived, they found the family in the living room with Marcia sitting in one of the reclining easy chairs watching cartoons on the TV. Their initial reactions were to assume that there had been a burglary until Jerry explained everything from the start, from the knocking and the gradual progression to the carnage that they now saw before them. At first, Officer Leonzi and Tomek were unsure of what to make of the good in story, but it wasn't long until they were witnessing the events for themselves. Officer Tomek saw a shelf vibrate and shake, and both witnessed the television in the living room levitate up into the air, turn on its axis, and place itself back down at odd angle. When we got the call to go to 966 Lindley Street, In no way did they tell us we were going to a haunted house. When we got there, we thought we were investigating a burglary, the way it was all messed up. Only later did they tell us what happened. I was told I would see a lot of things in the police force, but I never expected to see what I saw in that house. When we got here, the house was a ray. We observed things lift off the shelf and fall to the ground. As the events were shaking the first two police officers, A second patrol car arrived, and officers Leroy Lawson and George Wilson stepped into the house just in time to see the large, 450-pound fridge fall forwards, moving by itself, floating, turning, and eventually falling on its front. The fridge was checked over, and the two utterly baffled new officers, who weren't quite sure what they had stepped into, went down to the basement to check the integrity of the floor beneath the heavy appliance to see if it had rotted or collapsed causing the fridge to move and fall, but they had found nothing out of the ordinary. At 11am, Officer Tomek called back to the station attempting to explain the situation and to call for an ambulance to come out and take care of Laura's foot, which had swelled badly after the TV set that had fallen onto it the night before. At the same time, he requested that the fire department send out some engineers to check out the house. All the while, loud noises continued in Marcia's room, as the Bureau once more fell whilst everyone was in the living room or the kitchen. A gold cross was witnessed that hung on the living room wall, swinging like a pendulum back and forth, until it violently flew across the room, hitting Officer Leroy Lawson in the chest. It was enough for Lawson, who bolted from the house and locked himself in his patrol car. Backup came in the form of Assistant Chief Paul McKenna and nine firemen, including Deputy Fire Chief Frederick's Verline. The patrol officers filled them in on what had been happening, and they set about checking the house over for natural anomalies or structural issues. McKenna offered the Goodins to stay at the local Red Cross center, but Jerry and Laura thanked him for the suggestion and said that they had family that they could stay with if they were forced from their home. With so many people on the property, reports of events continued at ever-gathering rate. The plastic roses on top of the TV in the living room were witnessed to move by themselves, turning in their vase by one fireman. Whilst the TV console in the kitchen fell over, and Deputy Fire Chief Sverline saw a chair jump up and fall backwards in the kitchen by itself. A new phenomenon arose when the entire group collectively began to smell a sulphurous air pervading through the rooms. Sverline called into the station, requesting the services of the firehouse chaplain. Father Edward Doyle, explaining, I'm not drunk, but this is what's happening, Father. By the time that Father Doyle arrived, events seemed to have started to relax at the house, as he witnessed nothing out of the ordinary, aside from the evidence of the commotion. Still, he paced throughout the upturned furniture with rosary beads and Bible in hand, reciting a blessing to appease both the terrified residents and the equally frightened police and firemen some of who were now standing outside, refusing to enter. They were not the only ones outside either. As the emergency services had turned up one by one that morning, they had drawn the attention of the locals, and slowly but surely, a crowd was gathering outside, as rumours of what was going on inside murmured through the street. One of the Goodin's neighbours, Mary Pascarella, a local librarian at the Reed School and member of the Psychic Research Centre in New Haven, found herself in the crowd that morning and excited by what she was hearing she went into the house to see if she could offer any assistance. Scoring some time alone with Marcia she took her into the master bedroom and in an effort to test her psychic powers asked the girl to attempt to levitate a small glass vial of rubbing alcohol. Marcia quickly found the situation frustrating as the bottle sat on the bedside cabinet staring back at her completely unmoving. Eventually she picked it up and threw it to the floor. Mary Pascarella left the house unperturbed, however, and contacted two of her friends, self-proclaimed demonologists and paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens' endless self-promotion would eventually see them rocket to fame after the release of the film The Conjuring in 2013. But back in 1974, Ed and Lorraine still had much work to do on crafting their image and when they arrived later that day, Ed wasted no time in contacting the press to fill them in on the details of the events in Lindley Street. From the very start, Jerry had not been that keen to invite the Warrens into their home, but after he had confided with the Hoffmans on Mary Pascarella's suggestion to invite them, and he had been reassured that they had apparently a good reputation, he had agreed. After Ed had finished calling up every paper in the local area, and many national papers too, He called the police station, speaking to a superintendent Walsh to explain that the commotion at the house had been caused by a poltergeist. Walsh listened on, naturally sceptical of Ed's claims, but at the same time, aware of the reports that he had been hearing from his officers throughout the morning. Ed then set about interviewing the Goodins and many of the officers at the scene, recording the interviews on cassette for future posterity. Ed and Lorraine, also calling the aid of Father William Charbonneau, assistant pastor of St. John of the Cross Roman Catholic Church in Middlebury and teacher at St. Joseph's College on a course concerning the occult and parapsychology. According to Ed, the house looked like it had been went through by someone with a baseball bat. By 2pm, Laura had arrived home from the hospital, foot newly strapped and bandaged. She arrived to a house full of police and firemen, along with Ed and Lorraine, and still the events were continuing. Whilst Ed and Lorraine had busied themselves, attempting to take straight accounts from the witnesses of the morning's events, a reclining chair in the living room that Marcia was sitting on slammed open and closed several times, jerking Marcia back and forth with it. Light bulbs had smashed throughout the home, an ashtray and cross had apparently both exploded, shattering across the floor, and all the while, The never ending smell of sulphur had filled the rooms. As the afternoon drew on, however, things did start to slowly quiet down, and one by one, the Warrens and the police slowly drifted from the house, the last of which advised the Goodins to call if they need any further assistance or they were subjected to any further disturbances. That evening, however, the disturbances came not from within the house, but from the crowds who were now gathering outside in much greater numbers, some choosing to throw cloves of garlic at the house after hearing that the events of that morning had been invoked by something unnatural. It wasn't long before the police were called back, this time to help deal with the entirely earthly task of controlling a crowd who were gathering increasingly in size and excitement. The next morning, Sunday the 24th of November, saw the return of Ed and Lorraine Warren, along with Father Charbonneau and Paulino, a young seminarian with an interest in the paranormal who had assisted Ed and Lorraine in the past. As they arrived, the crowds outside were already gathered for the day and the presence of the investigators further fueled excitement in the street, as many claimed to witness seeing furniture thrown about through the house's windows. Ed's phone calls to the press on the day before had worked just the magic he'd hoped for and several journalists joined the throng eagerly writing up the stories that drifted through the crowd. By now, these crowds had reached such a size that eight officers in four squad cars were necessary just to control the excitement. Inside the house, things were not much improved from the day before. Events had continued throughout the night and the morning, with furniture continuing to tip, topple and turn by itself, as well as several items of religious paraphernalia reportedly falling to the ground in various rooms. Lorraine Warren, an alleged sensitive to psychic matters, had not been in the house long that morning when she began to feel waves of nausea cascade over her. Surprisingly, this was not from being married to Ed, but from an unknown presence, she said, which later that morning manifested in a burn forming on her right hand while she sat at the kitchen table. This alarming escalation caused Ed to exclaim that she must wait outside, fearing that whatever presence was in the house was picking up on Lorraine's clairvoyance and reacting negatively. And still, things continued to get stranger. Later that morning, Ed was convinced that he heard the Goodin's cat hum the tune to Jingle Bells, whilst others in the house thought they heard voices coming from the animal. Cold spots were noted to have been found in a corner in Marcia's bedroom along with that same hanging sulfurous smell which they also believed to originate from the young girl's room. This led to Paulino and the Warrens concluding that the energy was focusing around Marcia who appeared to be the centre of events. Father Charbonneau spoke with Marcia who told him all about how she had been bullied at school and how she had been home tutored for the past six weeks owing to being pulled from school. She also spoke of her frustration with her mother for being so overbearing and of the isolation that she had been feeling, of how the teachers and other kids at school had all hated her and how the family cat had been her only friend. The next morning, Laura Goodin called Ed and Lorraine Warren early to ask for their help. The strange events had continued throughout the night and into Monday morning. Convinced that what was happening in the house was of a demonic origin, Ed and Lorraine Warren began their attempts to arrange for an exorcism at the house, whilst Paul Eno made his way over to see if he could help. That afternoon, Laura called Jerry at work, asking him to come early as events were still continuing. This was an invitation that Jerry had been all too keen to accept, as he had been suffering himself that morning from jeers and mocking conversations with his colleagues who had heard of the stories that had come from the house that weekend and picked on him relentlessly for being gullible, or for making up stories for attention. That Sunday, the story had hit the local papers, making front-page news in several, including the Bridgeport Telegram that ran the headline, Things move mysteriously in-house here. Police and fire authorities are stunned today and unable to determine the reasons for what have been termed unusual occurrences all day Sunday in a small four-room house at 966 Lindley Street, occupied by Mr and Mrs Gerald Gooden, and their 10-year-old daughter. Newsmen were refused admittance inside the house by relatives of the Gooden family who had been on guard duty near the front steps leading into the entrance. Police Sergeant Burden Manglinau also described the house as in shambles. I can't say too much, but what I saw amazed me, he said. I can't believe it, he added. Fire Chief John F. Gleason, who also responded, said he was unable to give an immediate answer as to what has been causing this. We at the fire department are not very good at chasing devils, he added. The article also included several quotes from Ed Warren, who, whilst playing his cards close to his chest, was keen to point out that he had personally witnessed 36 exorcisms in his past and displayed to the press a shattered crucifix that he had apparently removed from the Goodins' house. With the reports sensational as they were, the crowds only gathered more and more rapidly, Estimated by many newspapers to be around 2,000 strong Though some did go all out and claimed that it had been almost 10,000 Although apparently those numbers were later downplayed Either way, it was enough people to spill over into the Goodins lawn And to require the aid of round-the-clock police protection Complete with paddy wagon Waiting to take in those that got out of hand That Monday afternoon, things continued to escalate Whilst the Goodins played Monopoly in the living room Paulino said they witnessed a gauze-like mist manifest in front of them. He went on to say that it separated into four distinct identities. Jerry began chanting in a voice that both Paul and Laura said were not his own as he paced about the living room, tossing holy water about in something of a rage. One of the manifestations reportedly pushed Paul, who said he felt a bird-like bone structure to the mist and the entire event culminated in Marcia being pushed across the room. The family quickly upped and left the house, leaving it to the mercy of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who Paul phoned for assistance. That evening, whilst they blessed the house with the help of Father Charbonneau, the priest said he saw a shadowy, mist-like silhouette against the wall in the basement, with no face. This, they decided, was an event that they thought best to keep to themselves for now, and not share with the Goodins, who were feeling rightly fairly confused and terrified. That night, the family bundled together in the kitchen and living room, waiting until 2am for everyone to leave, before finally attempting to turn in for bed. Tuesday came with more commotion, as the crowds outside the house continued to swell. Jerry, who was now finding his nerves at breaking point, called to a police officer outside, asking him to come into the house for the family's protection. Officer Michael Costello stepped into the Goodin's house and called the station for backup. Whilst he waited for help to arrive, he sat down in one of the by now infamous recliners. Several people had seen them levitate, open and close and move backwards and forwards on their own, at times whilst Marcia had been sitting in them. Costello had been sceptical of the events that had been purported to have happened in the house the past few days, and he chose to spend his time in the house watching Marcia closely, whom he suspected had been potentially responsible for much of the unknown occurrences. Sure enough, much to his satisfaction, he watched the young girl push her leg out, press her foot against the base of the TV, and shift it in its place, startling Jerry span around and proclaimed that it had been moved by itself. Marcia caught the eye of Costello, who took her to one side and asked her why she had pushed the TV in secret. I wanted to see if the demon would do anything, she replied. But for Costello, he had seen all he had needed to see. He pressed Marcia until officers Del Toro and Zuaki arrived, when he quietly explained what he had seen. The trio together continued to question Marcia who reluctantly admitted to having pushed both the TV and the fridge the night before and of pretending to talk as the cat. The satisfied officers asked if anyone had put her up to it, to which she replied no, and at 5pm, Costello, Del Toro and Zawacki left the house, calling into the station to report that everything had been a hoax. Rumours quickly spread through the crowds outside, and it wasn't long before the mob turned from excited to angry with murmurs that the Warrens had paid off the Goodins to invent the entire affair. Inspector Philip J. Clark arrived at the scene to explain to the crowds that the case had been officially closed as a hoax, and the press was duly notified, who went on to run front-page stories the very next day. Family haunted no longer. Cops say girl tells of hoax. Bridgeport Police said today the reported unexplained happenings in a North End home in the past three days were a hoax created by the family's ten-year-old adopted Canadian Indian girl. The girl admitted early today during questioning that she had been the one who had done the banging on the walls and the floors, knocked a crucifix to the floor, threw pictures down and caused all the other unusual happenings, Inspector Clark said. The police said today that after lengthy interrogation of the parents and the girl, Marcia also admitted that the family cat, Sam, did not talk as reported. Edward Warren of Monroe, a psychic researcher, differed with the police statement and said, if it is a hoax, it's one of the biggest hoaxes I've ever seen. I've seen the bureau smashed to the floor at least four times and no one was near it at the time. He asserted numerous police officers saw the same thing happen. I think that some shrewd detective has talked the family into saying it was a hoax to get rid of the crowds away from the house, Mr. Warren told Newsman. But Superintendent Walsh commented on Mr. Warren. He makes his money chasing ghosts. I would suggest that he stay in his own environs and keep out of Bridgefort. We have no ghosts here. Dr. Santiago Escobar of the City Mobile Medical Services was called to the house on behalf of the police to speak with Marcia and the Goodins. He concluded that Marcia should be booked into a course of psychiatric care at the Baptist Memorial Mental Health Clinic, where she might get psychiatric help, and the Goodins agreed, booking her appointment later that day. Ed and Lorraine Warren arrived at the house as well that day, furious with the police, but Jerry and Laura turned them away. They had sided with the police, and decided that if the whole thing was a hoax, then Lorraine's burn from the kitchen must have been self-inflicted, concluding them to be dangerous. Jerry also found Ed's initial fervour to get the press involved and his involvement ever since to be off-putting and the couple were forced to leave with their tails between their legs. The strange thing was, despite the case closing as a hoax and the events seemingly reaching a cataclysmic finale, the strange happenings in the house showed little sign of ceasing. Furthermore, it wasn't only Ed and Lorraine Warren who felt affronted by the claims by Superintendent Walsh many of the officers who had been in the house over the past days along with some of the firemen categorically denied that marcia had had anything to do with any of the events that they had witnessed if like ed had suggested to the press the police had publicly called it out as a hoax in an attempt to thin the crowds outside they had misstepped there too as many appeared to go nowhere despite it being thanksgiving that evening Three men were arrested by police after they had been caught attempting to set a fire ablaze in the backyard of the Goodin's house and when questioned why they had done so, they told police that they were trying to rid the home of the evil brought into the neighbourhood. As November faded into December, the police still found themselves patrolling outside the Goodin's home throughout the day. The events inside the residence were reportedly beginning to calm down. And finally, the crowds were dwindled to just a few die-hard ghost enthusiasts who staked out the small residence day and night. Jerry and Laura, who had bore the brunt of the backlash against the case, were still suffering, though now from the human element, as Jerry found his workplace difficult to deal with and the family had found themselves unable to go to church as they normally would, afraid to bring the unwanted crowds who followed them. Jerry, who had towed the line that the thing had been a hoax, now found himself daily defending his daughter from strangers, convinced that she had not been the sole perpetrator of the commotion, and both he and Laura were grown increasingly concerned of how it might affect her after she returned to school. The first week of December passed by quietly at home. However, on the night of the 7th, Jerry once again was found clattering from the front door of the house and calling out to the stationed officer in alarm, crying for help. Siemens rushed inside following Jerry to find the house once again turned upside down. He helped Jerry and Laura replace the furniture and called for backup, which arrived in time to see both the desk and recliner move in the living room. Only this time, Marcia had been in full view of all the expectant officers who were naturally keeping a close eye on the young girl. Jerry and Laura took Marcia to New York to visit family. It was perhaps best to just remove themselves from the premises for a while. When they returned, it was once again to a house that looked like the scene of a home invasion. All the pictures on the walls were found crooked in their frames. The wall clock had fallen onto the floor in the kitchen, whilst various pieces of furniture were tipped and toppled over. A week earlier, the Goodins had rescued a German shepherd dog, which they named Silver, who they found cowering beneath the bed in the master bedroom. The following Sunday, Jerry and Laura went to see Father Edward Doyle in resignation to ask if there was any hope for the Catholic Church to pass an application for an exorcism. The next day, Boyce Beatty, a member of the American Society for Psychical Research, called up Jerry and offered his assistance in the ongoing issues at their home. Jerry, who by now was happy to have any help at all, made assurances with Beatty that the press would not be called and any investigation he wished to carry out at the time would not be made public and carried out in as much secrecy as he was able. Beatty agreed and he met the family at Lindley Street on the 18th of December along with Blue Harari and Jerry Selfin, two members of the local Psychical Research Foundation. They interviewed all three of the Goodins and found that in particular Marcia had suffered greatly throughout the incident. The next morning, Beatty visited the local police in an effort to get hold of the official police records. Expecting to find an element of resistance, when he explained who he was and the situation he had agreed with the Goodins to keep things quiet, he instead found Inspector Clark to be more than accommodating. In fact, Clark explained to him that he had never thought the case to be a hoax at all, but that he had been handed the case late in the day and told to shut it down as a hoax in order to restore normalcy to the area. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, the inspector had carried out the wishes of his superiors. But now, with Beatty once more promising to keep things hush hush, he gave the investigator a full access to the police department's records, as well as to his officers, that too felt that the events of 966 Lindley Street had not been a hoax. Beatty's investigation continued quietly in the background through to January as events in the Goodin home slowly began to reduce once more. Marcia was admitted back to school in the new year, and Jerry and Laura hired a lawyer, Victor Ferrente, in order to shut down any publicity against them that was making life difficult in the area for all three Goodins. Chiefly, he sent a letter to the Warrens demanding that they not use the Goodins' names in any of their lectures, in a last ditch effort to put an end to the relentless snide remarks and mockery at his work, in the streets and as both he and Laura feared going on at Marcia's school, Jerry went onto radio WNAB to conduct one single interview, where he defended his daughter and categorically stated that the events of the house had been true. For Jerry and Laura, the events that happened over the winter of 1974 and 1975 had been more than trying. They had suffered over $5,000 of property damage and countless sleepless nights whilst their nerves were truly shred to pieces. They put their house on sale in mid-January in an attempt to break free from the area and start afresh somewhere new, where Marcia could grow up without the shadow of the previous events hanging over her. Though the house was up for market value, no one ever bought it, and the Goodins lived there in relative peace and quiet until their death, though periodically small reports would leak out of random events, like the time when the sewing machine ripped out of the wall socket, and flew across the room, or when the furniture once more found itself tipped and turned over. When she turned 18, Marcia was quick to leave the Goodin family home. She had decided to return to Canada to seek out her birth parents, and for a long time, she disappeared into complete obscurity. In 1993, Laura Goodin was involved in a fatal car crash that ended her life at the age of 68 whilst Jerry died four years later of natural causes, aged 78. In 2015, William J. Hall, author of a book on the Linden Street case, received a letter from a reader who stated that they had seen a notice in the Mansfield News Journal looking for information on a deceased person named Marsha Godin, aged 51. William contacted the coroner, and uncovered what little is known about Marcia after she returned to America from her trip north to seek her parents. She had apparently suffered from both epilepsy and MS in later life, taken up with a man in Ohio who was much her senior and had been a heavy user of narcotics for pain management. William provided the coroner with the details of her life and Marcia was finally laid to rest, afforded a proper burial in the summer of 2015. So what had happened at 966 Lindley Street during the cold winter months of 1974? Had it all been a hoax, perpetrated by a 70 pound, 11 year old girl in full view of over a dozen police officers? Or had it been a genuine case of haunting, as suggested by a pair of shady psychic investigators and a host of officials? Or had it been something in between, something less obvious, real to some, but a clear hoax to others? To Michael Costello, it was clear. If you look into their statements, what they saw mostly was end results after things happened. In most cases, they didn't really see the things happen. They saw the results of what had happened. They also saw things when their attention was diverted to something else. Being human and not perfect, I made the mistake of becoming a believer before I witnessed anything, thus having my mind seeing what I expected to see. During his own investigation, Boyce Beatty found that Marcia had been a pretty intense victim of her mother's overbearing parenting. I sensed considerable tension in the family, especially between the mother and the girl and the mother and the father. I expected the girl had been building up feelings of anger, hostility, resentment, fear and anxiety during this period. In addition, I sensed the girl is overly protected by both parents, especially the mother and that she is very frustrated and annoyed at this, although she does not express these feelings and tends to resolve them by withdrawing or crying. The mother strikes me as being very unhappy, emotionally unstable, fearful, anxious and extremely defensive. Overall, I evaluated the interpersonal relationships in the home as being pathological. It is this environment that set the stage for the poltergeist disturbances. There are some that suggest that this frustration and anger was expressed by Marcia as the tipping and smashing of furniture and the perpetration of the hoax, whilst others suggest that the frustrations are what attracted the paranormal in the first place. Those that believe so often suggest that the idea of a hoax is a complete farce, that a young girl of 11 years of age couldn't even begin to tip a 450 and fifty-pound refrigerator It's clear that Marcia did involve herself with some of the events as witnessed by Costello on the night of the confession, but had she simply added to what was already going on in the house, keen to impress the new officer on the scene? In earlier interviews, it was stated by several officers that Marcia was enjoying the attention and coming and going of so many officers in the house. Had she simply sought to impress Costello when the occurrences were quiet on their own? Loath as I am to speak these words, Was Ed Warren right in his assessment of the hoax announcement? The police were outside night and day attempting to keep the peace in crowds that grew by the day and as it turned out, their worst fears were realised on Thanksgiving night when the three men attempted to burn the house down. Perhaps they had decided that enough was enough and the best course of action was to shut it down, just like Walsh said. Beatty's investigation acknowledged the fraudulent events perpetrated by Marcia but still suggested that the vast majority had little more to do with the girl other than the fact that she was the centre of the focus of the energy in the house. This viewpoint was echoed throughout by several police officers who all repeated that they believed Marcia may well have had a hand in some of the events but that there was just no way that she could have been involved in everything that they had seen during their time in the house. If the entire affair had been a desperate call for attention by the Goodins, it had severely backfired. Dramatically costing them a considerable amount in damages and never paying them back As they acted to not only avoid public attention But employed a lawyer to actively shut the case down So what can it have been? There have been various theories put forward concerning natural conclusions From earthquakes to construction work But none make any sense when you view the case over an extended period of time But what if it was some psychological phenomena The audience had been primed with the recent release of The Exorcist and the atmosphere of the day was one of a fairly accepting outlook towards the occult and the paranormal. If the officers had been aware of the case as they walked into the house, how much did they see because it was precisely what they expected to see? How much of it was a collective hysteria? Some of the police who were active at the time have denied this. Tomek went on record to state that he had no idea what he was walking into before he got into the house but it's still a theory that probably answers the most questions. Much of the more outlandish events that took place were witnessed only by the Warrens, a pair of investigators who have made their entire careers out of fraudulently taking advantage of similar situations, so much of their nonsense can be readily discarded, including the cat that sang Jingle Bells to Ed. These explanations still don't account for a fridge falling flat onto its face in a room crowded with police officers, firemen and priests, however. Whether or not you believe the story that Goodin's were hoaxing, in, that some deep psychological phenomena had taken place, or that the Goodin's story was entirely true to its every detail, the truth will remain buried with the Goodin family, likely forever. Perhaps the truest words left by the entire case were those of a contemporary witness speaking to a local newspaper when he said tongue-firmly-in-cheek that if there was a poltergeist or demon who came in to cause trouble, then it had succeeded beyond its wildest imagination. The story of Lindley. Lindley Street Haunting, the, or the good in it's called a whole bunch of things. You've got the Bridgeport Poltergeist, the Lindley Street Haunting, you know. So, but anyway, the story of that is a cracker, I think, um, and, and a lot to talk about. So we'll get into that after this short advert breaks.
1: Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avey. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
0: When I first started the Dark Histories Discord server, one of the first things that came up was a pretty big crossover between dark histories listeners and DD players which was kind of weird but great because i love a bit of DD. i'm currently running um curse of strad campaign as a dm and it's a lot of fun but exactly as much of a nightmare as i pretty much always read about but back to the point one of the members of the dark histories community over there on discord it turns out has a small etsy shop where they make some really nice dice bags and they're all handcrafted and like totally unique and they're actually genuinely unique as well because he uses some nice quite often vintage discarded fabrics from their local theater and i really like some of the old finished floral prints that they've got and i definitely appreciate that they're not all the kind of cliche designs that are kind of scream like i play d d you know they've got a bit more to them than that so Given that uh, they're one of us and a member of the Discord community, if you're looking for a dice bag or want to reach out and perhaps ask them to make something custom for you, definitely go check them out on Etsy at Mayfly December Design, and I'll pop a link to that in the show notes also. Um, all through October, they've kindly said that they'll run a 10% discount using the code DarkHistories10 at checkout. So really, what's not to like, right? If you're a D&D player, and you're looking for a nice new bag, or you know someone that is, definitely head over and see what they can do for you. You also get the satisfaction to know that you're supporting one of our own community members, which is what it's all about in many ways. So yeah, definitely go check them out if it's your thing. Cheers. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those, not so much. Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3 and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads. PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30-second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So, yeah, what a great story. That, that story with the Goodins, it reminds me so much of the Enfield Poltergeist, and it and it puts me in a similar place to the Enfield Poltergeist, if I'm honest. Everyone that's listened to this podcast would probably know by right now that I'm, I'm a fairly big sceptic. Or, you know, I approach things from a sceptical angle. In In these sorts of stories, especially the bolder the claims, the, the more I need to look into that and kind of like double-check and triple-check and see precisely what people are sometimes saying when they're making these big claims. But with something like Enfield, and, and, and I find the same thing with this case, is that, so there was a, a lot... A lot, a lot of activity going on, and there was a lot of people involved, and a lot of those people were, like they say, like police, firemen, things like that. Now, I'm well aware of the fallacy of call to authority, and that you know, just because someone's a policeman, it doesn't mean that they're, what they're saying is any more true than anyone else. You know, and and that that's a, a fallacy that often gets put like kind of pulled out in paranormal situations you see it a lot in ufo cases as well you know like, oh they're a pilot so what they said must be true well why like you know just because they're a pilot doesn't make them any more fallible any less fallible than anyone else so yeah like i'm aware of that fallacy and all the rest but i still think it's not so much like the quality of the witnesses for me it's just the quantity like the sheer number of people that were in that house and saw all that stuff happening it kind of gets to me, it like bores under my skin a little bit and that's what I really like about this this kind of story and and why I kind of picked it for this episode just because I think so, many, you know, if, if only 1% of this is true, it's amazing, you know, like, like I, 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 cause I kind of go along, I feel like, you know, again, it reminds me of the Enfield in that same way where I think probably a lot of it was hoaxed by the girl. I think, you know, that's that's fine. Probably an awful lot to be said for the theory that perhaps not hysteria, but some kind of group think, you know, some kind of the authorities in a sense, like a closed system in that when they would have got back to the station, they would have told other people about it. And those people so so everyone in that station would have probably heard about what they what was going on in the house. So they would have got there like primed and ready to see it. And then when they see things, they just confirm it Um you know, they confirm the stories that they heard and then they go back and say, yeah, I saw it too, you know. So I think, I do think to some degree there's a, there's a really good argument for a lot of psychological stuff going on here. But still, if even 1% of it, like I say, is true, then it's amazing. I think pretty much everything that the, the Warren said is nonsense. I think that they're, they're a pair of frauds. I think they always have been, always will be allegedly the things I've read about them I should probably say it's like allegedly they're they're not very nice people I I hated the fact that they were even part of this and it didn't really seem that they added anything to this case apart from the press which no surprise really because they're a pair of or or they were a pair of fraudulent sort of money making schemers that were more interested in self promotion than anything else really Um, I think um, it's my opinion on them. Uh so anyway, I don't really believe that, that they were uh that they that anything that they said was true. I mean the jingle bells to the cat was just absurd. But but I think there's a lot of other stuff, you know, that if it's not paranormal, it's still interesting because it's like an example of the way things can sort of get, get carried out of hand um very quickly, uh just just through the environment and you know, like like priming Someone's mind beforehand, and, and what that can really achieve. So I still think it's interesting, even if it's if you don't, you know, if if you disagree with it entirely as a ha- haunting and think it's all a big hoax. But yeah, as for me, I'm not sure. I don't think it was all a big hoax. Much like the Enfield case, which has roundly been debunked at this point. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot, just you know, clear hoax, and it's been well, well, well shown by this point. But a lot of it is weird and does chuck up questions and it and isn't properly answered. And, and I, I feel the same with this. Another thing that's similar with Enfield with this is that they didn't really seek to make money out of it or publicise it in any way. And I would say this goes a step further even than Enfield in that these guys, the, the Goodens, they didn't even really... It, it really seems like they went complete. They really pushed back against it. You know, they didn't he did one that one radio interview, um, but that was it. And and the radio interview was really as a way to kind of like, right, let's put this to bed so that we can move on. He he didn't want to dwell on it at all. And it, it seems yeah, he really didn't want to publicize anything. And then there's the fact that the second investigation with um from Beatty, um Boyce Beatty, started after it had been called a hoax. And all the rest of it, where really he had like nothing to gain at that point to let that guy come in. What you know, why at that point, why didn't he just say to that guy like, "Go away"? Unless he was like quite desperate and either needed or wanted answers or just someone that maybe believed him. So I think it tosses up a lot of interesting questions. I I still think that, like I say, like probably ninety nine percent of this is 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 hoax and and. Or, or understandable through natural things. And, and, and I'm tempted to believe that it's probably like 90% psychological and a, and a good like, you know, 10% hoax. That, 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 that would be a fine ratio for me. You know, I, I do think Marcia probably enjoyed the attention. She was very isolated, very bored, very frustrated. You can see that there's a lot to gain. She was annoying her parents who had annoyed her so she could get that kind of revenge back on her parents. She was entertaining herself when she was very bored and she was getting a lot of attention as well, which she'd never really had. So all the attention she had 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 been very negative, whereas now she was getting all this attention from police officers that were coming in. They were playing with her. They were talking to her. There's a couple of interviews that I read that said that they noticed that she really enjoyed having so many people coming in and out of the house, the hustle bustle of the house, again, it's something else that's reflected in Enfield. Like, the young girl there was really enamoured with, like, the the coming and going of the investigators and such. So, yeah, you can see how it benefits her to be hoaxing it, I think. But I don't think she hoaxed all of it. I don't think that's possible. I don't... You know, there was just stuff that she couldn't have done. Even if you say, like, 90% of it was some sort of psychological kind of priming and a kind of groupthink so I wouldn't go as far as hysteria but some kind of sort of mass hysteria I'd be I'd totally buy into that as well but I just think there's enough here that leaves questions that isn't answered properly that leaves you to just just kind of scratches away you know like just just in the corner like you feel like you've got it all summed up and wrapped up right you're like right yeah hoax and psychological issues yeah that that answers that that's fine and then you got to move on and then there's this little scratch at the bo- like the bottom corner of your mind that's just kind of like this finger just scratching away going like, are you really sure? Like, is this completely answered? Look at all the stuff that happened. Have you really got all the answers for everything that happened? And you have to kind of conclude that you don't. So, you know, what if just 1% of it was true? it would still be a fantastic case. And that's what I really like about it. And I think that's what I really like about Enfield as well for a haunting case. So I think largely that's nonsense, but it just has that, like you know, like 1% for me that just scratches away and says like, are you really sure? Um, so yeah, you know, uh, that's that, that's that story. Um, do get in touch with your... Um, you know, what you feel about it. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do that. You can email me at dark, uh, contact at dark um You can also see it for the Blur. You can also follow me on all the social medias, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can DM me through those. If you like, you can find all of that stuff either in the show notes or on darkhistories.com. If you'd like to support, then that'd be great. Otherwise, yeah thanks very much for listening it's been an absolute pleasure i've really enjoyed this episode not least because i got to watch a whole load of exorcist documentaries which was fantastic um but you know i just enjoyed the whole episode so yeah thanks very much for joining me on this one it's, it's been great fun have a great halloween if you would like to come to the live stream then say so that'll be on the 24th and more information will be put out about that closer to the date on social medias and in discord if you'd like to participate in that like i said if you have any urban legends like local urban legends to you and you want to write them up and and send them in definitely do so um because it's going to be really great live stream but it it pretty much pivots on you guys sending your legends in so no pressure or anything right um but it's all up to you so yeah (laughs) thanks very much for listening um i will see you all real soon either at the live stream if you don't make it to that i'll see you all next episode thanks very much for listening stay well stay healthy and sleep tight